Morning, brethren. That sounded different. Can you hear me all right? We, uh, we're going to pick up with this second chapter of Joel this morning and uh, look into some more of the, uh, the locust invasion and how it had its infect, uh, impact on the people. And the title of our remarks this morning, we would title, Rend Your Hearts and Not Your Garments. And we'll see this in, the, in one of the verses coming up in the second chapter. Um, we had a little bit of review from yesterday I wanted to go over. We talked about the uh, locust. We talked about the vine and fig tree. We read from Isaiah 5 where it said, The vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold oppression for righteousness, but behold a cry. Psalm 80, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. So again, in considering these verses, we know exactly who we're talking about here, the vine and the fig tree. And from this twofold aspect, we see the people themselves as the vine and the fig tree, the nation, the land, being decimated here. But as their decimation takes place, we see that throughout this message of Joel, he still gives them a message of hope. And we'll pick these out as we continue through the chapter. Yesterday we had uh, this slide up here. I had several that asked me afterwards if we could put this back up and, uh, and kind of go over the words one more time. But we see the, the palmer worm had the, the, the Hebrew word gazam, and it had the numerical value of 50. And this, again, was relate, relating to the Babylonian invasion from 588 to 538, which was exactly 50 years. Uh, again, with the number 208 relating to the word arba, Elek, number 140 was the number for that, and so on and so forth. So it's interesting, and as I mentioned to a few of you, this information came from a couple of different sources. So at first, in studying this and coming up with these numbers, I'll have to admit, I thought it felt fit too well, if you know what I'm getting at. But it really does seem like, um, like it has a, an important message hidden within the numbers here for us. So I thought that was valuable to us to understand. Again, not only the the impact of those those uh, uh, insects, but how it relates to um, the image that we see in Daniel. We discussed the trees. We we, we talked about the uh, the evergreen tree of the of the pomegranate and its juice, what it was used for. We talked about the palm tree being upright, straight, speaking of honesty and integrity, and how important that was. And then we saw how the the joy was withered away from men. And in this portion of our discussion, again, I'd like to bring this to our mind. It seemed as though Israel felt like serving the Lord God Almighty, even Yahweh, that it became wearisome to them, and it became a drudgery. He was the farthest thing from their mind at times. And yet we discussed in this that Yahweh desires our love and eagerness to serve, to study, to discuss, and to perform His will with joy and gladness, as we read from another verse. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 47, it's because thou servest not Yahweh thy God with joyfulness and gladness of heart for the abundance of things. And brethren, don't we count it wonderful blessing, the things that we have, the abundance of all things, especially things like this Bible school and our brethren of like faith that we can share the hope with. We finished up with the, with the exclamation, alas, for the day of the Lord was at hand. 
And he also mentioned unto thee, Lord, would I cry in this verse. So we see here that, that Joel was, was, was speaking of this judgment that was there. It was on them already. And now he was seeking help from the only one that was truly able to help and give them comfort, looking unto Yahweh. And again, this was in comparison to how they had in the past sought help and comfort from other nations and from other people. And of course, this angered the Lord. And so we'll now we'll pick up this morning in considering these invasions and all this and how what, what led up to this, this, uh, this account here, what brought this about. We considered that they were told to awaken from their drunken stupor, we, we called it, the ignorance of their lifestyle and what they had fallen into. We've considered the lesson to be upright as the palm tree and to be faithful in good works as typified in the pomegranate, and those were cut off. So we see Israel had neglected some very important principles in their life. Overall, then, we learned that the problem was association with the world. The problem was that down through time, Israel had associated with Babylon. If we revisit verse one, chapter 1, verse 5, it said, Awake, ye drunkards, weep and howl. They had gone out into the world and had drunk of the wine of Babylon, so to speak. But now Yahweh has, was determined to judge them for this. And so we saw in chapter 115, alas for the day. And so judgment was coming down upon them inevitably. Again now, brethren, let's turn our attention to, to our day and time. The wine of Babylon permeating our world. The apostasy in the world around us. The wine of Babylon is still here and very present. The papacy is still on the move. The impact that they have in our society, in our world, we know has been foretold in the apocalypse and on down in Timothy and other, other scripture that told us that things would happen in the latter days and that this development of false religion would happen. We see today the papacy is still on the move, influencing millions of people in every country. And this we see as a more ecumenical movement spreading even in this country. Now we see not necessarily a division of, of religions, so to speak, anymore, but now we're seeing this amalgamation or this coming together of religions into one of a more, um, what we would call, non-denominational. And so by this we see the influence that this apostasy has had throughout the generations and centuries and even though now we see an, uh, an increase in Islam and Mus the, the Muslim faith, we, we have to understand that this is still working in the background. Catholicism still has its place in our day. Again, today we see the, the Joel Olsteins and the Joyce Mayers making an impact in our society. And with this, we see the philosophies of humanism melding together with so-called Christianity more and more. The I'm okay, you're okay religious philosophy. You believe what you like, and I'll believe what I like. Meanwhile, again, organized religion like the papacy is building strength like we know it should, like we know it's been prophesied in the latter days, organizing itself against the rise in Islam and the Middle Eastern trends of Sharia law and Mohammedism. She's standing up as we know she would do as we read in the book of Revelation. 
Her plan is not only religious, but political as well. And we have to understand that. Her plan is to continue to grow in strength, to get a hold of what, what we know as the European Union, the EU, and to use that to dictate to all nations as it becomes stronger economically, stronger even more than the United States. And don't we see this taking place? It's expected that the euro could become the basis of international trade even before the end of this year. The U.S. dollar is losing more and more value and becoming more and more unstable in world markets. At the same time, the U.S. debt grows higher and higher. The EU note is called the euro, and it has the country of which it's sealed in on one side, like Spain or Portugal, and on the other it has the woman riding on the beast, as the picture shows. Her apostate influence is growing, even though it seems that Islam is the order of the day. But brethren, let us not be deceived. Let us not be carried away with the moment and what's happening. The ra radicalism of the movement of Islam will find its place in world events. But it does not, brethren, take the place of the apostasy in, in, uh, in Scripture. Apostate Christianity, Catholic, Catholicism, Catholicism, that is, will infiltrate every aspect of life as we know it in every country. How accurate is the scriptures when it says, Babylon, Babylon, mother of harlots. Incredible as we see it permeating the world. But we see, just as Joel did, that the judgment of global populace is inevitable. All nations will be gathered together to judgment. Economically and politically, borders are being erased. Borders are being erased. Therefore, judgment will find no barriers when our master returns. The Almighty is preparing the world, the planet, for this judgment that will take place. And we see that as these borders are being erased, this, uh, this radicalism, this revolutionary spirit has taken place in all of these different nations some of them even seeking to set up this new world order. The new world order. Well, brethren, we know of a new world order that will take place. And it will subdue uh, and crush all of these other nations and become a great and mighty kingdom that will fill the whole earth. And it's completely different than what they see today. So we see the Almighty preparing the earth, getting people of every land ready. We've seen pictures like this with the uprising in Egypt and in Bahrain, even in Yemen, and now in Syria. All of these are working together <clears throat> to prepare the world for what we know is the return of Christ, the establishment of that wonderful kingdom. We see all the cataclysmic events of the world, environmental problems, disease problems, all the threats that we see that seem to, to affect every nation, even more in this country, we see flooding and, and drought, um, things like that. And all of this, again, like we said, affecting uh, the earth, God preparing things on a global scale for what will take place. Our master's return is inevitable and is surely at the door. We have to be ready for the time that's ushered in. And this is where Joel picks up in Joel chapter 2. So open your Bibles back to Joel 2, and we'll pick up where we left off yesterday. We leave behind chapter 1, 
and we see where the day now is at hand. Before he was, he was warning of it, but now we see um, a change has happened here. In chapter 2, he says, it is here, it is happening, it is upon us. Look at verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord comes, for it is nigh at hand. We see from this that it was nigh at hand, it was there, and it was in the land of Israel, it was in Judah. You could stand upon the walls of a city then, like Jerusalem, and you could look out and you could see the invader as they had years before when the Assyrian had come into the land and taken away the tribes of Israel. As the invasion invasion would come down, they could see the other towns being taken one by one, burning as they were plundered and overthrown. And so as the Assyrian had done years before, we see now the Babylonians as they come into Jerusalem. You could see the smoke rising up from the distance. Closer and closer they came. The shofar, the warning horn trumpet, should have been blowing. But we see the command went out, blow ye the trumpet. As if they weren't prepared to even have someone out there standing and watching. And Joel was telling them here, go and do it. Blow, prepare, get ready. Nothing would stop the impending judgment that was coming upon him, and they had to be warned. So now in this chapter, in this part of the second chapter, he doesn't name a locust plague, but the description is definitely linked to the plague of the locust described in our first chapter that we've already covered. We see in verse 2, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, it says. As the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong, there hath not ever been the like. Neither shall any more after it, even to the years of many generations. So just pause and consider just for a moment. We see this, this picture we have here that I found of, of a locust plague. All that this individual does, struggling to ward them off. It seems that he's doing it to no avail. The sky darkened. Think about so many that the sky becomes darkened and it's hard to see. Pause and consider again the number of, pla- of, of locusts that we had used in our example in the plague. 42,000 million tons, or 42 billion, four, 24 trillion insects. It's hard to consider so many, to, to really get that impact, to comprehend so many insects that it would cover the land in darkness and gloominess. But he describes this coming upon him. And he says in verse 3 that the land will become desolate. He says, a fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth, and the land is as a garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape. So again, we considered what the locusts do, and nothing is left behind. And the invader has the appearance of horsemen as we continue on, and this is what the locusts look like, kind of like little horsemen, we might say. Now, at first I was kind of struggling to see the the likeness there, but I I guess in a way we can see the legs and the fierceness, um, the eyes. We can kind of see the the likeness here. But as we go through now, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about this. The invader had the appearance of the horsemen, and this is what the locusts look like, kind of like little horsemen. 
And the people's faces were filled with horror, as we see. And they imagined the watchman on the wall as the locust plague would come down into the land. Filled with fear, pale and white, the people would look on. And so we see what he's describing in all, is all the symptoms of this locust plague here in chapter 2. But now he begins with the sounding of hope and warning. First warning and then hope. Let's go back through this now a little bit slower, what we talked about. Verse 1. Blow ye the trumpet. We've talked about this before, and Brother Aaron brought this to our attention on Sunday. We see the trumpet blowing this horn. And the watchman would stand there high above the city and would blow this to warn the people of coming danger. And we see this trumpet that they would blow might look something like this. The original ram's horn. uh, The horn of of a sheep. And we see this as the name shofar. Now it says to blow it, and this comes from the word that refers to a blast. It was a long blast. It was a war cry, an alert, a call to prepare, a call to awaken. And of course, as we study this, we see it was a a call for them to awaken not only naturally or or physically, but, but spiritually as well, to wake up to the position that they were in. So the man would stand and blow this to warn the people. So this was the watchman's duty. A sharp, strident note that would be very easy to recognize throughout the land. And at this point, it would have filled the people with terror as they understood what it meant. Let's consider Jeremiah 4, verse 5 and 8, where he says, Declare ye in Judah and publish in Jerusalem, And say, blow ye the trumpet in the land. Cry and gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the defense cities. Set up the standard toward Zion. Retire and stay not. For I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. Again, let's pick up that word, evil from the north and great destruction. The lion has come up from his thicket. And the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate, and thy cities should be laid waste without an inhabitant. And then there, look at verse 8. For this, gird you with sackcloth, lament and howl, for the fierce anger of the Lord is not turned back from us. So again, we see the same structure of the sentence in this warning as we saw here in Joel. The same similar language. This can also be a call of mercy. Let's consider this for just a moment. This is separate from what we see here in the first verse. But a little bit later on in verse 15, we'll see him blowing the trumpet again. We see the call of mercy, or also in the land, it was also blown at specific times, like the tenth day of the first, or the, of the, of the seventh day of the month. This was the day of, of atonement that they were told to blow the horn, and gathered the people together for worship, for sacrifice, and for acknowledging the goodness and blessings of their Heavenly Father. We see it was also blown during the time of the Jubilee year. Verse 25 of, of chapter 25 of Leviticus is where it's mentioned. It says, Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, in the day of atonement, shall you make the trumpet sound through all your land. 
Now, of course, we, we understand all that's implied here when we're considering the Day of Atonement, the day when the sin of mankind, of, of, of Israel, we might say, of, of God's people, was atoned for throughout their special sacrificial services, the time that these offerings were made on behalf of, of all the people to atone for their sin. Consider just the blessing in that and the hope and the mercy in him providing this for his people. Verse 10 says, And you shall, you shall hallow the fiftieth year, that year of Jubilee, and proclaim liberty throughout all the lands and to all the inhabitants thereof. And it shall be a jubilee unto you, and you shall return every man unto his possessions, and you shall return every man unto his family. Well, let's consider the idea here that we're talking about. First, the horn is blown as a, as a warning of war that's coming. And then later in the chapter, we see it, it's of mercy and of them to gather themselves together and to repent and to truly worship the Lord with all their heart. Isn't this what will happen in the future age? So we see chapter 3 unfolds before us as all of the multitudes, multitudes are gathered together in the valley of decision. This horn of, of shofar of, of war is blown as all the nations are gathered around. But then we see mercy and forgiveness and grace imparted unto all those that will accept Christ. So we have the same lesson here for us in this blowing of the trumpet. A call to mercy. And so in Joel 2 and verse 1, it's a call to prepare. They were to get their act together, so to speak. And if they did, then they would enjoy mercy and liberty in the age to come. So again, we've talked about this before, but we have our modern trumpet blasts that we should be listening to and preparing for as well, don't we, brethren? We have all the things in the world we see around us. We see things happening in the brotherhood. All of the things that are getting us ready and preparing us and making us understand that all of the unrest is what God intends to bring about before his son returns. The command is to blow it in Zion, my holy mountain. He's speaking here of Jerusalem, isn't he? And why? Because Jerusalem is associated with their eternal future, their eternal hope. Their association with Zion speaks of a future fulfillment of blessing and exaltation as the center of the entire world. But we see here, it's in jeopardy at the moment. And at this time, it's about to be overrun. And they were to act in the proper way. Zion occurs seven times in this small little prophecy. And while the word holy means set apart for a particular purpose, it's used as well. And so by using these terms together, Yahweh is warning the invader as well as reminding Judah that he, was, he has a covenant with Zion, a covenant with Zion to set it apart for his specific purpose. The same phrase happens again in chapter 3, 17 that we'll talk about a little bit later on. My holy mountain shows the Almighty's possession of it as well as his future plans and his purpose. And it's here on the mount that offerings will be made in righteousness, as we see from Ezekiel 20, verse 40, Isaiah 66 and 30, and the temple established in joy, as we see in Isaiah 56 and verse 7. Now in verses 2 through 9 of this second chapter, 
Again, we see he describes, as we've studied before, the inevitability of this invasion. The appearance of them as horses, like we mentioned. The noise of them as chariots. And as they come down upon the land, they devour everything in sight. And they are called his mighty army, or his army in verse 11. He shall utter, utter his voice before his army. In verse 2, it's this day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. And when we consider this verse a little deeper, we see that darkness means a day of obscurity, darkness that can even be felt, as one commentator put it. It must have been like one that would cover the sky, as we said. As the people stood and looked, it would, they would be covered by it, so to speak. They wouldn't even see the, the sun through this thick darkness. And compare this with Jeremiah's words in verse Chapter 4, verse 13 of Jeremiah, where he says, Behold, he, that is the Babylonians, shall come upon us as clouds, and his chariot shall be as whirlwinds. Oh, how the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud in his anger. From Lamentation 2, verse 1. He goes on and says, As the morning spread upon the mountains, and as we consider this a little deeper, there's a meaning in this as well. The word morning is a somewhat unusual word with a double meaning as well. And it comes from shekhar, the verb meaning to break forth or to be black. To break forth or to be black. So when we put these together, we see that there are two perspectives involved. We see blackness and then the new dawn. You can see where I'm going with this. We have blackness related to judgment and decimation, and the new dawn relating to mercy at Christ's return and the establishment of his kingdom in Zion. So he continues by describing the people as a great people, as in many and powerful and strong. And he also goes on to say that there hath not been ever the like, and neither shall there any more after it, even unto the years of many generations. But we need to consider this a little more in depth, too, where it says, because this doesn't mean that this invasion that those in the days of of Joel would experience from the Babylonians would be the worst ever or that it would never happen again. From Rotherham's translation, it makes it a little clearer by saying, and after whom shall not be again unto the years of generations after generations. So in other words, this implies that many generations... Many generations after this, there would be um, there would be an invasion. Again, as we've talked about in the past, generations where even the Gogian would finally come into the land, the Russian. And so this multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision, we see speaks of a huge number. And this is chapter 3, verse 14. And he's saying here in chapter 2 that Yes, it will be bad, and the locust that comes down, they will come and decimate, but there will be others to follow. And as we've seen in chapter 1, first the Babylonians, the Medes, Persians, the Grecians, the Romans, and then followed by the final overthrow, and that is the Gogian. But as verse 3 says, and it will... We read that a minute ago. But a fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame. The land is as a garden of Eden, 
In verse 4, the appearance of them is as the appearance of horses and horsemen, and so shall they run. Of course, we know the Garden of Eden is from the river Euphrates in that area, and the Promised Land is from the river of Euphrates to the river of Egypt. This is the land, the land that Abraham saw and that was promised to him. And the word Eden means delight, and it's a delightful land, the glory of all lands, it's called. But when the locust passes over it, we see here it's become a wilderness, a desolation, a devastation. And so when you look at the locust, it does have the appearance of horsemen in some respects. And it's interesting to discover that in the Latin language, the word for uh, locust is cavaletti, cavaletti. And this is where we get our English word cavalry. This seems to be how they're described here as a horseman coming in waves, ready for battle, possibly a cavalry-like horseman, a cavalry of horsemen. Other scriptures use the same wording, such as Revelation 9, verse 7, 2 through 7. And of course, it's not alluding directly here to Joel, but we see the same likeness used. Remember here in Revelation 9, it was speaking of the Muslims in AD 633, the Muslims who came and the Saracens who came into the land that were mentioned at that time. We see in verse 9, it says, And there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented for five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. And then continue on. And in those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Then look at the last one. And the shape of the locusts were likened to horses prepared for battle. So again, this is a theme that we see that's used in several other instances to describe these horsemen as they come down upon the land. And why? Again, because of the great number of them, the multitude, as these horsemen would come in. The appearance of a cavalry. And so we can understand the, the language here. And it's very important to put it together in order to avoid um, confusion of just exactly who the invader is. These weren't literal horsemen, but the appearance of them. Back in Joel 2.5, he describes the characteristics. Again, he says, Like unto the noise of chariots on the tops of the mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble as a strong people set in battle array. Bullinger in the Companion Bible says, the symbols must not be confused with what is symbolized. So we have to keep that in mind, what is symbolized. And it's interesting that this description, because it said that the locusts were very noisy as they fly. And one of the brothers here was telling me the other day about some of those cicadas, and as they, as they uh, hatched out of their, out of their, uh, their skins, that they would all fly, and often they're all in a large group, and you could hear them almost like a small helicopter or an airplane. And so in huge numbers, it would create quite a roar, I'm sure. And it said also that they could be heard at sometimes up to six miles away. And also, they literally eat the vegetation. When they eat, it actually sounds like a roar as they go through. And can't we imagine Joel's description here when he says, there is a flame of fire roaring over the countryside. And if you've ever seen a wildfire, there certainly is a tremendous roar that's associated with it, 
a scary image that the sound of their wings would make, the sound of their jaws as well. So the smallness of these little insects, yet in vast number, are hard to imagine how huge they become in one mass. Terrifying. No wonder, naturally, verse verse 6 follows, Before their face the people shall be much pained, and all faces shall gather blackness. So from this word, the much pain, we see the pain means to twist or to be writhing in agony. All faces had withdrawn their color. The people were in anguish. And so now, brethren, we expect the invasion again in the future age, don't we? In Ezekiel 38, we compare this with the same description mentioned. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land. From this word storm, it means to rush over as a tempest. And by implication, devastation. How can we not put the description of Joel together with the 38th chapter of Ezekiel? And again, he's saying, be on guard and be ready. Watch and listen. Be prepared. Remember the words of Christ in Luke 21 and Matthew 24. These can be scary words. But we, brethren, are greatly blessed. We are watching and we're working and we're observing these warning signs. But when this moment of storm comes upon Israel, as this great Gogian invader comes upon them, it will be a terrible sight and the world will see what's happening. But brethren, we will be blessed because we won't be there, will we? We won't see this. We, brethren, will be at Sinai. We will be waiting to hear those words, hopefully, of acceptance by our master. But the rest of the world will see as the Gogian decimates the land. They will watch the Middle East as it's overturned, and they will wonder at all of this incredible, fearful thing that's taking place. As the Russian alliance comes down, it will devastate everything in its path, as we've talked about. And we've seen how they've used this devastation in in recent years with the Georgian invasion with Chechnya, how they've treated even their own people. And it's some like the United States and these young lions who will stand aside and ask, Art thou come to take a spoil? As if to say, well, you might as well go ahead because we can't do anything about it anyway. This is where the Tarshish nations shall be. This will be the end of things as the world knows it. And they will be terrified. All faces shall go black, as we saw in verse 6. And so this description that we have here in Joel, yes, it relates to the Babylonians in the days of Joel, but more appropriately, I think it relates to our day. And it's what the world is going to see in the very near future as we see things getting ready, the structure being set. And we already hear the shofar horn blowing. In verse 7, we see these invaders are unstoppable. They run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march everyone in his ways, and they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another, for they shall walk everyone in his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. This is as if they were as if they were immortal. As if. You see, you might kill some of them, but it wouldn't matter. There were so many of them. He's saying it looks as though they were totally invincible. Walls and barriers, 
They were no problem. They were no problem at all as this invader would come through. The Jerusalem Bible has it this way. It says, each march straight ahead, not turning from his path. From this, it shows the determined resolve to fulfill their mission, which is what verse 8 continues to show us. And I'll read that from the complete Jewish Bible here on our slide. It says, they don't jostle each other, but they stay on their own paths. They burst through defenses unharmed, without even breaking ranks. They rush into the city, they rush along the walls, they climb up into the houses, entering like a thief thief through the windows. This isn't saying that the Babylonians were immortal, but that they cannot be stopped, that there was little that those in Judah could do to stop them. The steadiness and regularity which marks this advance of locusts was mentioned by Solomon when he said, The locusts have no king, yet they go forth, all of them, by bands, Proverbs 30, verse 27. And so on this occasion, on the walls of Jerusalem, it would seem that if the advancing soldiers were all decimated, then they were immediately replaced by more and more, on and on. And so this brought out in different translations like Rotherham, it says, they burst through the weapons, they burst through the weapons and are not halted. Think of the other prophecies that relate to the same description, brethren. So in verse 9, the description describes the relative ease with which they will overwhelm and control the city. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run up on the walls. In other words, nothing can stop them. From this, we could compare some other verses that we're very familiar with. How can we not compare this in Joel with Zechariah 14? Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, it says. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off. What about Zechariah 12? Again, we have the same, the same thing mentioned. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundations of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. A siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people, while all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. Another version speaks of this as, they held themselves at the city, and they leap on the walls, and they climb to the housetops, and make their way through windows like marauders. Like marauders. Doesn't this describe just what we've seen here in Zechariah? Nothing can stop this Gaugian advance, except Christ and the saints as they come to deliver Israel. So we'll stop there for today, and tomorrow we'll pick up with the earth quaking and the sun being darkened.